Welcome to episode 139 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Why, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumers, from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in 
a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 139 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How was your Thanksgiving, Jen? It was really great. We had people over to our new house. And so we had 14 people for dinner and we had plenty of room and we had lots of fun. And I do have a funny story. Oh, please tell. Well, I have two nieces. Well, I have several nieces, but two of them are little. You're still elementary school age, you know, and we're talking about what they want for Christmas. And so they were naming things they wanted. And then my stepmother told the story about how when I was their age, I used to tell everyone the exact same thing that I really, really wanted. So I made sure I got it. And then I would get duplicates. Of the same thing. Did you ever do that? Now I'm trying to think. I know that happened before. I don't know. That's like ringing a lot of bells in my head. So probably. (laughs) But here's the funny part. I was like, yeah, I remember that, you know, the one Christmas that I asked for a baby alive and I got two of them. She's like, yeah, but what about the year that you asked for a tape recorder? And are you, you remember tape recorders. You're not too young to remember tape recorders, right? Did y'all have tape recorders? Yeah, I feel like they were on their way out. Cassette tapes? Okay. Well, well, I asked for, I think I got three tape recorders, but guess what I wanted to do with the tape recorder? Wait, I'm thinking. I don't know. I've Because I'm can. i just thinking of like all the random things I probably wanted to do with a tape recorder. What? I wanted to tape myself like talking and, and like telling things and making jokes and like I wanted to record myself. So now here I am with two podcasts and I'd never thought about, you know, because when I was a little girl, I always played school and I wanted to be a teacher, but then I also like to record myself doing things. So anyway, I think that was funny. I had totally forgotten that I used to do that. That's really funny. Yeah. So I was like podcasting on my tape recorder. <laughs> I just recorded myself talking about stuff. Like about like life, like the house. <laughs> I don't even really remember, but I can remember like with the little attached microphone and these had like actual microphones that were like attached to them or whatever. And I can remember talking into the little microphone and recording it and playing it back. And I don't know what I was doing, but that's really funny. I was, I guess, tape recorder casting. It was meant to be. (laughs) Anyway, that was, I had totally forgotten that I used to do that. I know I used to, um, apparently whenever my dad would take home videos. I would prance around and say, make a movie of me. That was like my, my thing. Yeah. (laughs) See, you always knew you wanted to act. Yep. We always, always know. Now I'm just thinking of all these childhood toys (laughs) and all the craziness. It is really funny to look back on. I look, I remember we were watching an old home movie from when the boys were really little, like toddlers and Will had uh, his hands on a toy guitar. He was just playing that toy guitar. Now he's, you know, singer songwriter with the guitar. So I'm like, look at that. It's all signs. Yeah, you're attracted to the things you want to do from your very early age. It's just a matter of doing the things you love. 
And here we are doing the things we love. This is so true. So true. (laughs) So you had a great Thanksgiving. Yep. It was all, all good. It was kind of, kind of madness this year because this was the first year that I actually had to be doing a lot of prepping for Black Friday, not because of me shopping on Black Friday. I'm not a big, I'm not a Black Friday shopper. Are you? Oh, me neither. I, I have never gone out shopping on Black Friday. People, back before it was like extended like it is now, when people had to like line up first thing in the morning and my family's like, we're going at 5 a.m. I'm like, not me. <laughs> they could be giving away stuff at 5 a.m. and I would not line up for it. I don't. <laughs> Same. Like it has never appealed to me. But this year, now that we have the podcasts and everything like that and are working with a lot of you know different companies and stuff, it's like everybody has Black Friday deals. And so now I sort of, this year I actually did sort of care because there's all of these like biohacking type Black Friday deals on things I actually would buy. <laughs> like, you know, like red light therapy and genetic testing and things like this. I don't know. I feel like all week I was getting all these emails from different companies being like, can you promote our Black Friday? And can you talk about our Black Friday? And I was like, oh, got to like get all the Black Friday stuff together. It's from the other side of it, right? Now, it's, instead of from the consumer, it's from the the other the other side of it. Very interesting. Yeah, I was like, Black Friday is like a whole new thing this year, but um, I'm glad it's finally here because that means it's almost over. <laughs> and of course, now everybody will know we're recording this on Black Friday, even though you'll be listening to it way after Black Friday, but I haven't even started my Christmas shopping, so help. <laughs> You know, I was looking at a Facebook memory from a few years ago, and I was already done with my Christmas shopping by this point. I'm like, what is happening? Yeah, I used to be like really on top of it, and now I'm just trying to like keep my life together. So, although, oh, that's another reason this week was crazy. This was the first week that I ever recorded an episode for my other podcast and then had to edit it like the next day <laughs> and be done. And it was the the big one, the one with David Sinclair. So that was all this week. But Jen, oh my goodness, it was literally, as you and listeners know, I was prepping for that interview for like months. It literally was the most amazing interview I think I've ever had. It it could not have gone any better. He is like the most wonderful, like knowledgeable, but really open person. And I was um, listening. He was actually, ironically enough, Ben Greenfield aired his episode with him today as well. One thing he was saying on that podcast was how David Sinclair was saying how much he appreciates podcasts because it removes the barrier that has historically existed between scientists and researchers and like the scientific journals and then the late, like the public. Because it, before that, it was really like to get that information, you had to rely on media interpreting studies. And they do such a terrible job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what he was saying. He was like, he said, and the Ben Greenfield one, he said that he, he's like never read a media interpretation of a study where it was like actually correct. <laughs> but he was saying podcasting is this whole new platform because people like him, like researchers and top scientists and top doctors can speak directly to podcasters. And then it goes directly to our audience. There's no... There's no middleman, no interpretation. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but it's true, you know? Yeah, that's wonderful. That that really is we're we're just in a whole new era of getting getting messages out. Yeah. It's, it's great. I love it. I do too. Here cuz here we are, you know, we both started with self-published books 
And podcasts are also self-published, right? So, (laughs) oh, yes. So can I tell you my two favorite moments from the interview? Yeah, I'd love to hear them. One moment was I asked a question and he said that that was the question to ask. And if anybody could find the answer to that, it would be a Nobel Prize. And I was like, oh my goodness. Wow. Okay. So I've got to know what the question was. I wanted to know if aging was due to, if reversing aging would be accomplished by replacing information that was lost or removing damage that had accumulated. Oh, that's a good question. And he said, they don't really know if it's like, to what extent is it of which part? Well, it was a longer, more complicated answer. But um, Was it like that they both play a role, but they're not sure? Yeah, yeah. Because he was saying like, yeah, basically like, is it enough to just restore a cell's genetic makeup to like its original state? Or does like the actual aging process create an accumulation of something that interferes with that? And then the second moment was, I don't remember what question I asked. I asked something and then he said that I should be a scientist in his lab and that he might have a position for me. (laughs) I was like, oh, that'd be amazing. But yeah, it was great. So for listeners, I will put a link to that episode in the show notes. It's amazing. Yeah, I was really happy. Well, I'm glad that it went well and that you did not lose the entire recording. (laughs) I know. Were you like so stressed about it? Yes. The whole time I was like, <sighs> like, and then like once it was over, I was like, oh my goodness, like moment. What if it's <sighs> now every time I hang up, actually, I have like a little freak out moment because there's like that in between when we stop recording and then I download the files to check them. So it's like in that in between moment. Yeah. Whew. Well, I'm glad everything all is well. This is true. And congratulations on having a good episode. I know that that's important. Thank you. Oh, one, one last thing, Jen. So you know, he's the basically one of the primary researchers that discovered the health benefits of resveratrol, which we associate with red wine. And he's also really, he talks about this in his book, but how the beneficial compounds that we get from plants are often upregulated when the plants are stressed, something known as xenohormesis. That's one reason that you can actually get more health benefits from like organic fruits and stuff, for example, or organic vegetables and produce. Well, because they've had to work harder, right? They've had to work harder to survive versus all the ones that have been babied with the chemicals. Yeah. So besides the problems of conventional produce having chemicals and pesticides, and we don't even you know all of that, they're not stressed, like you just said, Jen. And it's when these plants are stressed that they create these compounds that can provide health benefits to us. So I asked David Sinclair if he was familiar with dry farm wines because you know that's what we drink. It's organic wine, but it also the dry farming actually makes the plants more stressed as well. Like it's like actually basically everything that he was talking about and he hadn't heard about them, but he got so excited. He, he was like, I've been looking for a wine company that would be finding like these exact type of wines. So I connected him with them. So, well, that's wonderful. And you know, it all circles back that we're learning so many things about Like, for example, hand sanitizer, how clean we all are and how we're sanitizing everything and finding out that's actually not as good for us as we thought, because then our bodies don't have the practice of fighting things off. So, you know, it's a similar idea. It works for plants, works for humans. Yep. 
And I've been prepping. I have an interview Monday with Dr. Rochelle again. He's the one you really liked. I know. I really loved him. Jen's always like, who's that one guy I really liked? <laughs> What's his name? So I was rereading his book. He has, I think he has like every single study ever about what, what you just talked about. Like the difference in our gut microbiome specifically with like children who grew up on farms versus in conventional like a conventional setting or like even things like vacuuming and how it relates to your microbiome and so many things. It's fascinating. Although it seems that when you're younger is when it's more beneficial to be exposed to all of this compared to if you grew up in a sanitized society all along, it might be more problematic to just like jump into the dirtier side of things. Oh, that's interesting. See, I grew up, my mother was a hippie. I don't don't know how much I've talked about this before, (laughs) but my mother was a hippie. We lived in the woods. Like there was a period of time from the time I was in second grade till I graduated from high school, we had 30 acres in the mountains of Virginia. Like for the first month we lived there, we didn't even have electricity. And I was like outside and, you know, playing in the dirt, playing with the leaves. And you probably have a great microbiome. (laughs) I probably do. Well, yeah. I mean, I did. I had it analyzed with the American Gut Project, and mine had more diversity than Michael Pollan's, which (laughs) made me very... I didn't ruin it with all the years of bad eating and eating junk and whatever. But I wonder how much of that does go back to my childhood and all the playing outside. And then it makes me worry. You know, I taught school for 28 years, and children have so many more issues now behavioral issues, psychological issues. It's just so very interesting and and also frightening because it didn't used to be that way when I started teaching in 1990. And, you know, everyone always says that things have changed, but it really has. You know, schools have crisis response teams to deal with children who are acting out in ways that they did not act out like that in 1990 when I started. I mean, you would have the rare example of that, but now it's like, commonplace. And it's really sad. And I wonder how much of it is, you know, just what we've done with our kids and they're always inside and they're always clean and we've sanitized everything and how much of it is, is responsiveness in their gut. I could not agree more. I mean, I, I know we often like with everything automatically point, point the finger at processed food and things like that, but I think it goes so much deeper, like just connecting to the microbiome and then like the immune response to that as well. That was something else, <laughs> just because I've been like re- rereading Dr. Rousseau's book. He has all these studies in it about the immune response to gut bacteria and how your immune response, you can have like a good or a bad immune response to both quote, good or bad bacteria, or even to bacteria you should have. Basically our bodies are just all out of whack. And I really think it comes down to, I mean, I feel like it has to come down to like the the, the change in the food system as well as the environment. So Yeah. So many things that are all cumulative and that works together. And it's really probably impossible to tease out, you know, what exactly it is. It's just so many factors. They're all, you know, piling up together. That was the question that I asked when David asked if I wanted to come to Harvard (laughs) and be a scientist, because he was talking about how we have these, actually this relates to fasting very highly. So things called sirtuins, which are stress genes in our body. We have seven of them. CERT2 is probably the most well-studied one, but basically they work to, when there's 
chaos going on in your body. They, they kind of fix things. They also instigate repair mechanisms. They slow aging. They're, they're really, 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 really great things. And they're very intensely activated by fasting protocols. So listeners, you're doing yourself some good with intermittent fasting, but I was asking him, but one thing he discusses is that with our chronic situations that we often get in health-wise that these sirtuins, they, they basically leave their post and they go and address all of these health issues in the body, but sometimes they don't find their way back. So they're kind of just, yeah, I don't know. It was like a really tragic concept. So I was asking him if, did he think maybe chronic disease was because, or chronic illnesses that people can't seem to get out of? Was it because people's sirtuins are constantly going and trying to fix all the damage, but then they're not finding their way back. And then it's just like perpetuating itself and the body's never really able to heal. And yeah, he was saying it's very likely that they're actually doing studies on that right now. Basically, basically like is a cell more likely to become diseased once it is diseased. So it's like, you know, the snowball effect. Yep, for sure. So on that happy note, (laughs) intermittent fasting though really addresses that. It does. So you're doing something great for your body with intermittent fasting. Yeah, I really mean that though. Like I, I mean, it seems like a throwaway to say because this is the intermittent fasting podcast, but it's almost shocking. I think the amount of health benefits you can get from it compared to almost any other dietary intervention. Well, I think so too, which is why it's so heartbreaking for me. You know, I've come a long way since when I started in 2014 and all I wanted was quick weight loss. I mean, that was all I was after. I was obese. I wanted quick weight loss. But it's heartbreaking to me now when I see someone who is completely, you know, struggling in the weight loss department with intermittent fasting, and then they're like, I give up. This isn't working for me. That's the part that's heartbreaking because they only are seeing it as a weight loss mechanism. And I get it because I was there too. But also in 2014, we didn't know all this that we know now. You know, I remember when I started, even the books you were reading and the articles were really like, yeah, 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 it's just because you eat fewer calories, but it's easier to eat fewer calories in a window. Or it's easier to eat fewer calories every other day. That was that was it. That was all we were talking about. And so um, now, though, we know so much more about it that, you know, we've said it before, it's the health plan with the side effect of weight loss. And so anyone who's struggling with the weight loss side of the equation and thinking that intermittent fasting, quote, isn't working, you really don't know what all it's doing inside your body. And, you know, maybe you were struggling with weight loss before you started intermittent fasting, and now you're doing intermittent fasting, and you're still struggling with weight loss, but you're still doing something great for health. It hasn't made it worse for you weight loss-wise, you know, (laughs) it's not making you gain weight. So you can still have time to work on the, the weight loss side of things. You've got, you know, time to figure that out. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, completely. There's so much there. And it's also similar. I was listening yesterday to, I put a link to this in the intermittent fasting podcast, Stuff We Like playlist on Himalaya. It was the part two debate with Paul Saladino, the carnivore guy, <laughs> and Chris Masterdon. And it was about the carnivore diet, but actually I really suggest listeners listen to it because the second part wasn't really so much about the carnivore diet as they really went deep into the role of like nutrient availability and genetics and what genetics mean for the foods that we needed. But one thing they went deep into was, for example, the difference between the ketogenic state from a ketogenic diet versus from fasting. That was one of the things that was similar kind of to what you were just saying about the difference between is fasting just about calorie restriction or is it something else? 
they are talking about comparing, for example, the ketogenic diet. You can be in ketosis from the ketogenic diet, but also from fasting. But what are the implications of that? And I think you get the takeaway was you can get more benefits potentially from the fasted ketosis because of these upregulations of genes and right. different things that are happening that are not going to be happening in the fed state. Well, because our goal is not just having ketones. Our goal is the processes that come about when we're making or generating the ketones because we're in the fasted state. Unless you have you know epilepsy or, or a neurological condition and you just need ketones in your brain for that. But it's the processes we want to encourage. I can't believe it would be the same, you know, making ketones from, you know, bulletproof coffee versus making them from your own body fat. Because one of them, you've got plenty of nutrients you just ingested in your bulletproof coffee versus your body had to scrounge around to make those. I can't believe they'd be equivalent. I mean, yes, the ketones might be, but the processes are what we want to encourage. So they were saying that same thing. They were both on the same page pretty much about that. Something that was shocking that I had never heard before, but really made me, at least for me personally, want to do an intermittent fasting pattern with more carbs in the window compared to like full-time, just like a keto diet 24-7. Chris Masterjohn was saying that ketosis, generating ketones as an energy source, is highly beneficial for like the hypothalamus, the brain a lot of cells, but it's actually at the expense of the liver, which actually benefits more from a, like a glucose driven state that made me really rethink things. I was like, so again, that's another benefit or another push in the direction of what we want is metabolic flexibility. We want the, we want intermittent fasting. We want both. We want to dip into ketosis when we're fasting and then go back into the fed state and then get out of ketosis. Yeah, exactly. We're ahead of the, of the curve here, Melanie. <laughs> I know we like do all these things and then, yep. Yep. Cause we've been saying that, you know, I've, well, I've, I've definitely, I know I've been saying that just, you know, we, we don't want it 24 seven necessarily. That's not the goal. Yeah. Cause that's where they were like disagreeing a little bit because Obviously, with the carnivore diet, you are not, you know, you're not taking in any carbs. So Paul Saladino was making the argument that being in the ketogenic state was like great, you know, all the time for like energy and stuff. But Chris Master Thomas brought up that point about the liver versus the hypothalamus. And he was saying how quickly glutathione production in the liver is affected by a ketogenic state. And I was like, wow, because glutathione is like really, really huge in a big detoxifier of the body and really important. So seems like cyclical eating, cycling, doing like Jen and I do with more carbs in the window. I mean, a lot, not, if, if, if full-time keto all the time works for you, go for it, do it. But I do think there are a lot of nuances at play. And I think people like to make intense one size fits all recommendations when I don't think that's the case. And even the bioptimizer guy, what's the one that's keto? Tell me his name. I can't think of it as Matt. I actually interviewed them again yesterday. <laughs> Oh, did you? Well, Matt, you know, Matt is keto, and but he carb cycles, right? He still has the carb up days. Even though he's keto, he has days where he eats the carbs. And he knows the science. So that's fascinating. Yeah, it's very fascinating. People who understand the science, watch what they're doing and do that. That's what I think, right? <laughs> Don't necessarily do that. See what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then how can you apply that to yourself? 
Well, exactly, right. You know, like Mark Matson, the neurological researcher from Johns Hopkins, you know, when he's talking about what he does with his fasting regimen, he drinks black coffee. So I'm like, all right, it's good for Mark Matson. That's what I want to do. <laughs> That's so funny. I literally have open in front of me a study by, by Mark Matson. I love him. If we get to the question that it involves. <laughs> okay. If we ever get to any questions. Oh, wait. So, okay. It's so funny. I know I'm just reading all the authors on this study and I pretty much know who all these people are. Isn't that funny how like you start? <laughs> Walter Long goes on there. Mike Mosley, Krista Vardy. They must all just be great friends or not. I don't know. That's not the flipping the metabolic switch article, is it? Meal frequency and timing and health and disease. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okie dokie. Shall we go on to our listener questions? Yes. All right. So the first question comes from Birgit. Birgit says, hello, ladies. I stumbled over your podcast in February, 2018 and started intermittent fasting the day after. Since April, 2018, I am consistently living an OMAD 23-1 lifestyle. I cannot believe how different my life was before and how minimalistic it is now. I am convinced that this lifestyle is sustainable forever. Background information about me. I was already eating clean paleo slash keto since 2015 and had a lot of health benefits, energy level, thyroid issues. I also experienced weight loss of a total of 30 kilograms, female, 172 centimeters tall, but regained 15 kilograms before starting IF, probably triggered by too much stress in my life. My target weight would be to go back down to 60 kilograms, but nothing happens regarding the weight issue since starting IF. I am tracking regularly my ketone bodies and blood glucose with my blood meter, and it seems that I am well fat adapted and in ketosis. According to different energy expenditure calculators, my caloric need for maintenance would be 1850 calories. My current average caloric intake is 1500 calories, so already calorie restricted. Now to my question, does the amount that I eat for one meal a day in an evening window from 6 to 7 p.m. influence how long I can go with my fasting window? As mentioned above, I have a fasting window of 23 hours and I don't want to do less in order to have the most benefits out of the fasting process. At the end of the 23 hours, I am genuinely hungry, which ends up with me eating more than I normally would in one single meal. After the meal, I feel awkward. When I try to reduce my calorie intake, I have the impression that fasting 23 hours becomes impossible, and the idea of eating less than 1,500 calories does not appeal to me. So I feel trapped between the need to eat a lot in one meal in order to support the 23 hours of fasting and my wish to eat less in order to start weight loss and feel satisfied, but not overly full. All right, Jen, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I have lots of thoughts here. And I think this is what's what's really important to talk about. You know, we always say that fasting is protective of metabolism. But I do believe now after you know, all the research that I've done and everything that I've studied, that our bodies, even with the protective nature of fasting, if you're too consistent day in, day out, your body can adapt and will adapt. So the red flags here are that she is doing 23-1 consistently. I mean, that sounds fabulous, right? 23-1, a one-hour eating window. That's 23 hours for the fat-burning state. And also, she knows exactly that she's eating 1,500 calories a day average. Yeah, that sounds great, right? Because we've been trained that only calories matter. And of course, we know that we that, that that's not true. But, you know, through our lives, we've been taught calories in, calories out. So 
it goes to show that if you're eating in a one hour window and you're restricting yourself to 1500 calories a day and your maintenance is 1850, that that would be a caloric deficit of 350 calories a day. And so she would mathematically have to lose weight. So if you told somebody who is just a calories in, calories out proponent about this, then they would be like, well, either she's lying about how much she's eating. That's probably what they would say, because, of course, she's showing a 350 on paper caloric deficit. She should be losing weight. But the issue is that because she's eating in a one hour window every single day and her calories are, are fairly consistent at 1500, her body has adapted even with fasting. So. You know, it would be great if that couldn't happen, but it can. And we've seen it before. You know, I talked to people on my podcast. I remember someone I had early on and her story was very similar. She had gotten to a shorter and shorter window. She was restricting more and more and more, and she could not lose any more weight. Her body had adapted to that. Luckily for me, I'm the kind of person that cannot be overly restrictive because I'll be like, today I'm having two meals. So even when I was trying to stick to a consistent window, I would have days where I would have longer windows. So fortunately, my social nature and the throwing caution to the winds probably benefited me and helped me and kept my body from adapting. But for someone who has had a very consistent short window, has not lost all the weight and has a low calorie intake already, you know, she talks about should she eat even less? Absolutely not. That's not sustainable. What I would recommend in this case is an up day, down day pattern. I have a chapter about this in Delayed on Deny. You know, alternate daily fasting is another name for that. It's the more commonly used name or also something like 4-3. You know, if you know of 5-2 where you have two fasting days a week and five eating days with 4-3, it's three fasting days and four eating days or three down days, four up days. Or with alternate daily fasting, you would literally alternate up, down, up, down. So what I would recommend that you do If you want to do true alternate daily fasting, that would be, you know, you could do a full fast of 36 to 42 hours and then eat for the next, you know, the rest of the day. I would recommend you have at least two meals, maybe even three. If you're concerned that you've slowed your metabolism, which I really think could have happened here, then I would not try to eat low calorie on those days because the research that we have on the up and the down day pattern of alternate daily fasting is that you know, the low day when you're doing a full fast or a 500 calorie day, if you're following that down day protocol, that's where you're able to access your fat stores. Then on the up day, you eat more food and your body can, you know, know, hey, we're not starving. Everything's not the same. So it's that up and down pattern that's really protective of metabolic rate. You know, some people are scared of that because it seems like, you know, well, they're scared to do a longer fast. The 36 to 42 hour fast seems really scary because they're used to eating every day. But then the up day also sounds scary because they're used to eating, you know, a certain amount in a one hour window. And so they're afraid that they're going to ruin everything by allowing themselves to have two meals. So you need to get over both of those fears. If you're scared of the, the down day, you can have a 500 calorie meal in your down day, just one 500 calorie meal. Or you may find you do better with a full fast. I always did. I, I did better with the full fast on my down day. But on the up day, please don't be afraid to eat two or three meals because that's literally what the up day is for. The up day is the day to let your body know, hey, no need to slow down the metabolic rate 
we have plenty of food coming in. And so you can, you know, rev up that metabolism, get things going again. Down day, you lose the weight. The up day, you let your body know that you're not starving. And so over time, you should start to see slow and steady weight loss. This is the time to really understand that you're going to have fluctuations, though. Some people find that only weighing after the down day is a great strategy because then you only see, you know, the lower weights or make sure you're weighing daily Understand that after the up day, you're going to have a higher weight, but do weekly averaging or use an app like Happy Scale that does that for you and lets you see your overall trend because you are going to have up, down, up, down, up, down on the scale. But yeah, I absolutely would not say, you know, if, if 1500 calories in a one hour window is not resulting in weight loss, then the last thing you want to do is restrict even more because the sign is there that you need to actually switch things up. Are you thinking that could address her like struggle that she's having because she feels like she can't find a happy place where she's eating not enough? Well, she's she's not losing weight. So she's she's thinking the only way to lose weight is to eat even less, but that makes her really hungry. And, you know, that's your body telling you that, hey, something's not. And she feels really awkward and unpleasantly full after eating. Yeah eating too much. So again, the up day allows you to have a long eating window. And some people who try to do the up day, they're like, okay, well, I'm going to give myself a six hour window, but then they physically can't eat enough in a six hour window. And that's when we say, okay, make it longer, make it eight to 12. And then people get really uncomfortable because they're like, well, I can't possibly eat for eight to 12 hours. Obviously you won't start eating, you know, and eat solid for 12 hours, but it gives your body time to to feel hungry again and to fit in that second meal or even the third small meal. And that's what makes, that's the magic of the up and the down day pattern. You know, we've talked so many people through this in our Facebook groups and if they can get through the mental, mental hurdle of wanting to start it, they're like, okay. Then they see, and then they, they finally start to see that slow and steady weight loss. Yeah. I think that's a really great recommendation. I think a lot of people fall into this, situation that Birgit is in where it seems like like there should be a middle ground, but for some reason it appears to you like it's either eat all you want and feel full and then not feel hungry at all the next day and, you know, go 23 hours or not eat enough, like under eat and then be hungry the next day. People seem to really, really struggle with like just finding the meal that would make them satisfied without overeating and then still at least feel like it'll fuel them the whole next day. She said, like, when I try to reduce the calorie intake, I have the impression that fasting 23 hours becomes impossible. I think there is like a huge mental component. And the reason I'm providing this backstory to it is because my initial response was actually, ironically, like the opposite of yours, but I think they're coming from a similar place. Because my impression in reading it was that she you know, has the weight to lose, but the way she's trying to do it is by really strictly controlling her calories and really strictly controlling her eating window to like an hour. But then what she ends up doing is overeating and maybe overburdening her system in this one hour, and then actually might be making her less efficient for the the long haul for the fasting if she's overburdening her system in the eating window. This is just my like initial thought. But what we do know, you know, if if we support our body in the eating window with the amount of food that needs, with the amount of nutrients that it needs, that 
it can actually become more metabolic, like the metabolism can actually increase while fasting and we, we can become more f- efficient with our fuel while fasting. So it's ironic because I was almost thinking maybe if you didn't try to completely stuff yourself for one hour every day and instead just did a more, had a more lax approach. So stop counting all these things. <laughs> so like stop counting the exact amount of calories, stop counting the exact one hour eating window, maybe give yourself a more flexible, like four hour eating window at night that you can eat to satiety and then know that you'll still be getting the fasted benefits the next day. I know she really likes this idea of going 23 hours fasted, but I think that she could actually potentially get more benefits out of the fast if she finds an eating window approach that works better for her, that doesn't make her feel awkward and unpleasantly full afterwards. Although I really like the the ADF idea as well. I don't know if I phrased that exactly right, but I, I just feel like what she's doing, it's clearly not working. So something needs to be tweaked. And I know she doesn't want to let go of the 23 hours straight, but I do think maybe playing with the, like playing with the idea of letting go of being wedded to calories and letting go of being wedded to a certain hour on the clock and trying some different approaches. I feel like based on what I've seen happen so often in the groups that 23-1, I'm not going to say never do 23-1, but I would be really cautious of doing it day in, day out, only 23-1 and never, you know, changing things up. As I said, I'm just a natural changer upper just because, you know, if if a friend called me up and said, hey, I really would like to take you to brunch, I'd be like, you bring on the brunch, you know, <laughs> I'm very impulsive when it comes to events and social situations and I will open my window if there's a reason to. And I always have been that way. I think that's that's protected my metabolism. So if I had been more, you know, because I talk in, in my book and also I've talked before about when I did the five by diet and, and I don't recommend that. Definitely not. But I only did it. You know, people are like, oh, you lost all of your weight with your with the five by diet. No, I actually lost very little of my weight with it because I couldn't make myself do it. I could do it perfectly, but then I'd be like, forget it. And then I would fall off the wagon. So I only did it for a very short time. The weight that I lost, a lot of it rebounded right back on afterwards. And you know, when I would get back on to regular intermittent fasting. So luckily my, my inability to restrict myself too long, I think has actually been the blessing. Been in your favor. (laughs) Exactly. So the people who have like so much better willpower than me is my point. End up ironically, possibly causing some adaptation. And I've never had that adaptation because I'm like, I think I'll go ahead and just open my window now. You know, I've been very flexible and I think that's helped. Okie dokie. Shall we move on to the next question? Yes. And this is from Emily and the subject is working out while doing IF. Emily says, I'm relatively new to IF, but I've managed to get into the habit of working out in the mornings before work. This has become something I'm really proud of and gives my whole day a jump start. I'm trying IF because I haven't lost the weight that I want to lose with just diet and exercise. Do you have any pro tips on working out while partaking in IF? Safety tips, workout types, etc. Thanks a million. All right. So I didn't really have an intense answer until I read Seamland's Metabolic Autophagy book. 
And by the way, he's the one I'm re-recording with tomorrow since we lost the original episode. But he has a whole chapter on fasted exercise, and I learned a ton. So I can share with you some of the tips that he says, and I will also refer you to that book if you want all of the the really intense like he, he has like, he has actual like workouts in it and like schedules. And if you want to do working out with intermittent fasting, get that book because it's, it's got the information. I'll put links to it in the show notes. And the show notes, by the way, will be at ifpodcast.com slash episode 139. So some of the, the things that he discusses in his book is basically fasted exercise is great. <laughs> um, it really supports autophagy, can really actually support muscle building afterwards, contrary to what people might think about losing muscle mass. He does have, if you're going really intense, some recommendations for supplements you could take to support it. But some of the takeaways were things like you can basically be focusing on intensity, frequency, or total volume. And you can see this kind of like as a triangle. And if one is like more intense another is going to be less intense. So you're not going to want to do, you know, full intensity, full frequency, full volume all at once. So for example, for volume, it would be like two hours of training. Intensity would be like 80 to 90% of near maximum effort and frequency would be training twice every day. So that's like the max version of all of those. So you're not going to want to do the max of all of those all at once. You're going to adjust them accordingly. So focusing, if you're going you know, more intense, you would do it less frequently if you're doing more of your total volume, less intensity. So like you make it all go together well. You're not going to want to go crazy with everything all at once. And as far as, especially as far as like safety goes, he makes the point that muscle recovery, like actual recovery of muscle can happen pretty quickly. Like you can recover, I think within like a day or two, exercising a certain muscle, but the actual, the, the CNS recovery, so like the nervous system component of that can actually take like a week. So that's why you wouldn't want to hardcore work out, you know, one part of your body, like every single day, <laughs> you're going to want to alternate the different things that you do, especially when you're doing this with the fasted training. Another thing, as far as safety goes, you want to avoid something called black hole training. And that's where you are basically training at a rate that you don't perceive as being overexerting or it's basically a type of training where you're in a danger zone for working out in it, where it's not really, it can be a problem if you do it too long, but you're not perceiving it as being too intense. So that was something to pay attention to. And that's something that you could work with like a trainer on. Basically the best way to support muscle, muscle mass with training is with heavy resistance and high intensity. And then supporting that you can do that with intermittent fasting, but support that with adequate recovery, adequate diet afterwards. And then going back to those recovery days, like I was talking about, because you do want to allow your, your muscles and your CNS time to recover. You can do like light cardio on recovery days when you're letting your muscles recover. So that was good to know. And something that was fascinating was we can actually refill muscle glycogen without eating, which was really interesting because when we do exercise, lactate is produced from glucose metabolism. So the body basically burns fat, which becomes lactic acid, which becomes lactate, which can be turned into glucose. So I guess glucose metabolism can be made from lactate from exercise without carbs, which was very fascinating to me. He also said this was something really random. And I guess I'm really just answering, she was talking about safety tips and workout types and stuff. He said, we actually should not warm up with stretching before any of these exercises. I know that 
I swear I've heard that before. Yeah. And I've heard that before too, but he was a a proponent of that. So I was saying before that he does advocate some supplements. He does have some protocols which do utilize specific BCAAs with exercise just to best support the exercise and minimize any negative effects from breaking the fasted state. But I won't go into too much intense detail on that. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not an exercise intense workout person, but I think we definitely do see that fast exercise can be great, but there are, if you, if you want to take it very seriously and make it, you know, a part of your like intense regimen, I would definitely recommend getting his book or, you know, following some sort of protocol. What are your thoughts, Jen? Well, here's my pro tip. Cause I really honestly can't give any more pro tips about the actual exercise and fasting than that, except for if you're new and you're just starting off with intermittent fasting, then my pro tip is do not expect that you're going to be able to continue your normal intensity workout, you know, your routine at first as your body is adjusting to fasting because your your body is looking for a fuel source. So it's going to be hard. You may feel like you're moving through jello. You're not going to have the, the stamina or the endurance. So Don't expect that it's going to be as easy at first as you're used to. And also don't expect that's how it's always going to be with intermittent fasting because that's the transition period. And so just be aware of that. Very great point. All right. So the next question comes from Liz and the subject is question about food issues. And Liz says, hi, I am 32 years old and have two children. I recently had two miscarriages in six months and three total, and I'm still healing physically and emotionally. I've struggled with food issues my whole life. My mom had them, and I don't blame them on her, but I know that I learned them from her. I'm particularly obsessive with sweets as a coping mechanism. I recently found your podcast and feel it could really help me, and I've started IF immediately. My question is, how can IF help with food issues? So, Liz, yeah, I understand food issues are deep for so many of us, you know, all of us that have been on the diet roller coaster are really just, you know, people who even haven't, we, we struggle with food, what to eat. And it sees that, you know, I see that sweets is your coping mechanism. So many of us have things that, that may be our, our fallbacks. So can intermittent fasting help with food issues? Yes. You know, here's the thing. Before I was an intermittent faster, my whole day was consumed with thoughts of food. I would get up, I would have a breakfast. And then from that point on, I was always thinking, is it an appropriate time for me to have a snack? Is it appropriate for me to eat again? Or do I need to wait? Is it an appropriate time for me to eat lunch? And so all day long, I was struggling with food. And the issue was, is it time to eat? Should I eat? Is it okay to eat? And food became so much more than just, you know, a way to nourish my body. And it really was a lot of a coping mechanism. Am I bored? Oh, time for a snack. And it wasn't even about the hunger. So the thing about intermittent fasting is you've got to find another coping mechanism for, you know, 19 hours a day or whatever it is. And it can be really hard at first. And you've got to learn to sit with your emotions. And then eventually you realize, other ways of coping. Now, when you first start intermittent fasting, let's say you started with 19.5 and and you have that five-hour eating window, you may find that you actually overcompensate in your eating window for a while because you've had the whole day of the fasting and now it's time to eat. 
And for so many reasons, you may find that you're overeating or, or overdoing the sugar or overdoing whatever it is that, that you have around you. Over time, that should settle down. And then you may start replacing what you were eating with, with higher quality foods. So really pay attention to that. Don't beat yourself up over it. Don't feel like you're a failure. You know, let your body ask for higher quality foods, work on your nutrition. And then hopefully over time, you'll realize you're not reaching for the sweets anymore. Not just in the 19 hours a day when you're fasting or whatever fasting protocol you choose, but in the five hours as well, you're reaching for something different. And then eventually maybe you've, you've broken that, that chain completely. It's just something to give it time, you know, and see what happens for you and be patient with yourself. You know, we all tend to sometimes, you know, when I'm stressed out, I'll still reach for something as a coping mechanism. Like, you know what? My husband got on my nerves today. I'm going to have a second glass of wine or a third glass of wine. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's really not what I want to do. <laughs> so you, you learn to think about it differently because the fasting time gives you practice in finding other ways to cope. I agree completely with the one caveat of I don't think even the end goal should be finding another way to cope. Because I think like ultimately in the end, we're looking for, and this is just my perspective and me dealing with my own urges and habits and struggles. And ultimately I'm trying to work towards a place of acceptance regardless of whatever I'm feeling or whatever I'm experiencing where I won't even need a coping mechanism. Of course, that's easier said than done. Well, your your coping mechanism is acceptance. I mean, you, you do have to cope with difficulties, right? Well, I think there's a difference between like coping and accepting because coping implies that there's something that shouldn't be happening. So you have a response to it in order to deal with it. Whereas accepting is it's happening and that's okay. And there's no need to backlash against it or like, so it, and this is what I'm just, I'm not there at all. <laughs> this is half of the reason I'm talking about it is because I'm like trying to work towards this with um, various, you know, meditation and mental techniques and readings and habits ways of thinking. But I think for me, at least what the goal is, is working towards, yeah, acceptance where you can experience anything and that's okay. And so you won't, you won't even need to hide it or suppress it or make it go away by eating sweets or watching TV or doing whatever you do to make it go away. I know I talk a lot about that book, the little book of big change by Amy Johnson, but honestly, it's, I think it's the most revolutionary book for understanding this and um, providing a new perspective because like what she says is any urge we have to do something. So for example, in Liz's situation, she turns to sweets when she experiences something distressing physically or, or emotionally. Her coping mechanism is turning to sweets because they make her feel better. I mean, she might like the sweets, but ultimately what she's probably trying to those sweets for is to make that urge to have the sweets go away. And that's what Amy Johnson talks about in that book is that any urge we get to engage in some behavior that we innately don't want to engage with, we do that behavior just to make that urge for it go away. And the, this is the reason I think intermittent fasting will be so revolutionary for you, Liz, because if you can commit to fasting for, you know, a certain amount of time each day and just making it all or none. So like during that window, you're, you're not going to have sweets. You're going to start to identify that, that voice that pops up that tells you to eat the sweets. You're going to start hearing it. 
And because you're not immediately like soothing it with the sweet, something that Amy Johnson will points out is that that urge will go away eventually. And you also start to realize that that is not you because if we get an urge and then we constantly address it. So like we want the sweet, we eat the sweet, we want the sweet, we eat the sweet, we want the sweet, we eat the sweet. Then we constantly think that we want the sweet. So we're eating the sweet when really it's this voice that we can choose not to engage with if we so choose. And um, the more and more you choose not to engage with it, the more aware you become of it. And I think one of the only ways to actually make that realization is to not engage with it. So intermittent fasting is the perfect opportunity because it is black and white, because it does give you a window where you can choose to hear these urges in your head, not engage with them. So then when you do get, when they do come later, maybe in your eating window, when it is okay to eat sweets, you'll start to hear it a little bit of a different way. And I had this own epiphany sort of recently because I was struggling with (laughs) something. So, um, you know, Jim, we talk about cashews. <laughs> so I love cashews. Like I love them. They, I just really, really love them and I will crave them, but they wreck me. Like <laughs> they stop my digestion. They make my face swell up. I think I'm, they do a lot to me. I get migraines. I don't ever get really headaches. I get headaches. I, it's, it's really, really awful. And it's happened enough that I, I know it's definitely, definitely the cashews. <laughs> I was starting to use this technique for every time that I get the the voice to the one to eat the cashews, I was like applying it to that. And I started to really realize that the urge to have it was the reason I wanted the cashews was so that I wouldn't have this urge anymore to eat the cashews. I started realizing that I have other weird little habit things that I do that, that I'm not as wedded to. So they're not like, it's not a big deal if I do or do not do them because they're not hurting anybody. They're just like little like ticks and like you know, like little habits that I'll do while I'm like reading or like, like picking at your nails or something. So it's not hurting anybody. It's not hurting me, but I decided to start trying this approach with that. And it was crazy because I realized the voice that would tell me to like pick at my nails was pretty much identically the same voice that would tell me to eat the cashews. And in both situations, I wanted to do the thing because it would make that urge for it go away. What was so shocking to me is that I didn't think that, so like picking at your nails, for example, I didn't really think, I was like, oh, I could stop doing that if I if I wanted, like no big deal. But when I started like actively trying to realize the urge to do it and then stop, the intensity and like the urge to do it got so overwhelming and it felt, <laughs> it felt like the voice telling me to eat the cashews and like, so, or, or could feel like the voice, you know, telling you to eat sweets and sorry, this is such a tangent, but what I'm saying is that when you start realizing these urges in your head that are trying to get you to do things to make you feel better in the moment, you can really, really begin to see the difference. You can really start to see where that's coming from and how you can choose not to engage and how you can just accept where you are at that moment. Because honestly, that urge is probably there to make you not deal with something else in the moment, be it boredom, sadness, stress. And I think, Liz, by doing fasting, and if you can commit to that fasted window, you'll really start to see things from a different perspective. That was so long. I'm sorry. But um, I think it could be huge. (laughs) We've given some very long answers today, but they were good. (laughs) There's just so much there. I mean, and we just talked about like the mental part of it. And there is, of course, I think she was probably thinking we were going to address like the 
more for like the physical craving nature of it, but we both took like a mental approach to it. You know, for me, that's just really more of what it comes down to for me. I guess we're both, you know, speaking of it from our own perspective and, you know, there are certain things that you just can't have because of the way you personally respond to them. Like I don't keep chips and dip in the house because I'm going to not just eat one. I'm going to sit there and I'm going to eat all the chips and dip until they're gone. So anything like that, like maybe, you know, sweets or Liz's kryptonite and sugar lights up her brain like a drug and she can't have it because she can't make herself stop. You know, that's like, like being an alcoholic who cannot have one drink. It, it's one of those things that you're the, there could be that physical side of it. Yeah. I think if there's one similarity, it is that, or one common thread between people providing different reasons for why we do what we do or engage in behaviors that we engage with or have sugar cravings or whatnot. I mean, it's all ultimately in an end to achieve some sort of state of balance again, you know, not have that wanting that need to change. So if only these things were easier said than done, but I do think fasting can make you really, really aware of like, that's what it can do hands down. Assuming you can commit to it. I keep saying that because if you give in, then, I mean, you can pick yourself up and try again the next day, but when you actually do see it out and do not give in to the urge, it'll become more and more clear each time that it is an urge. And every time you don't give into it, you get more strengthened. You'll feel more capable of not giving into it the next time. Whereas every time you give into it, you make it stronger for the next time. So you're always in control. So, well, this has been absolutely wonderful. So a few things for listeners before we go, if you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. Or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya partnered show. Definitely follow us in the Himalaya app to get early access to our podcast 24 hours in advance. You can also follow us on Instagram. We are ifpodcast and you can follow us on Twitter. We are the ifpod. All right. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? Well, we are hot and heavy in the holiday season, no matter, you know, we're we're recording this right after Thanksgiving, but we're in the middle of the holiday season by the time everyone's listening. And I just want to tell everybody, enjoy your holiday. Don't stress out. You're going to have longer windows and shorter windows. You'll have feasts. You'll have, you know, just go with the flow and enjoy your holidays and do not let your head get in your way of enjoying yourself. Enjoy the holidays and do not have guilt. That's my wisdom for everyone for today. (laughs) No, I agree completely. And you don't have to do extra long fasts to make up for them. That's my my other word of wisdom. Just have a day and then, you know, feel good. You want to feel good. So that is something we could have talked about this more at the beginning, but one of the other big takeaways I keep taking from like David Sinclair's work and like that metabolic autophagy and all these things is we do need periods of feasting and periods of fasting and periods of growth and periods of breaking down. And, you know, so sometimes that feasting time is going to be longer. It doesn't have to be just like, it doesn't have to be a cyclical every day, like feast fast, feast fast. It could be like, you know, a good holiday feasting. There you go. Enjoy the holidays. I mean, you don't want to celebrate every single day to the point that you've thrown all your whole fasting schedule out. (laughs) You know, you still want to have days where you're fasting and smaller eating windows, but just lose the guilt this holiday season. That would be my wish for you. Enjoy the holiday. Eat mindfully with no guilt. 
Exactly. All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right. I look forward to it. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.